Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. On August 20th, 1989, Jose and Kitty Menendez settled in to watch TV in the family room of their 9,000-square-foot Mediterranean-style mansion on North Elm Drive in Beverly Hills. The $5 million estate on a sedate, tree-lined street had previously been home to Elton John and Prince. And along with the prestigious 90210 zip code, it had a beautiful courtyard, pool, and tennis court. On this warm summer night, the middle-aged couple was enjoying a bowl of ice cream with strawberries as they watched the 1977 James Bond film, The Spy Who Loved Me. Then suddenly, without warning, their two sons burst into the room, armed with shotguns, and opened fire. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and this is the history of the 90s. And on this episode, we look back at the shocking story of the Menendez murders. The 90s seemed to be filled with high-profile criminal trials that captured the public's imagination. The O.J. Simpson trial is probably the first one that comes to mind. But before Marsha Clark and Johnny Cochran were battling it out in an L.A. courtroom, there was another jaw-dropping case that unfolded live on TV. One that featured a lively cast of characters and turned real-life tragedy into entertainment. In fact, it was this case that cleared the way for a televised OJ trial and first foreshadowed our fascination with true crime docuseries and reality TV. On this episode, we're going to take a second look at the murder trials of Eric and Lyle Menendez and ask the question, if the brothers stood trial today, would there be a different outcome in light of our current understanding of sexual abuse and family violence? You'll hear from journalist and author Robert Rand. He's been working on the Menendez story for 30 years. He was one of 12 journalists allowed in the courtroom in 1990. And he's uncovered incredible new evidence that could have altered the result of the trial. But first, let me take you back and tell you about the family at the center of this case. Jose Menendez, a Cuban immigrant, was living the American dream as a successful Hollywood executive. He moved to the U.S. when he was a teenager, and he went to college on a swimming scholarship. That's where he met Mary Louise Anderson, a former beauty queen who everyone called Kitty. And soon, they were married. Jose was ambitious. He was smart and sometimes pretty ruthless. But his drive was undeniable, and he went from being a part-time dishwasher at the famous 21 Club to being chief operating officer of RCA Records. That's where he helped sign a few big names, including the Eurythmics, Duran Duran, and Latin boy band Menudo. Meanwhile, Kitty was a stay-at-home mom and was raising their sons, Lyle and Eric. Jose drilled into the boys the importance of success and achievement. He made them memorize passages from self-help books, and he demanded they carry on intellectual conversations at dinner. 
Jose Menendez was uh, domineering, controlling. There were eyewitnesses to physical, verbal, and emotional abuse. That's journalist and author Robert Rand. We'll be relying on his book, The Menendez Murders, for many of the details in this episode. He says when the brothers were 12 and 9, Jose started them on a physically demanding regime in an effort to turn them into tennis pros. He hired expensive coaches and he supervised practices. There there were several uh, uh, anecdotes I was told by people where Jose just lost his temper. The tennis matches, he'd be, he'd be on the sidelines, you know, pacing back and forth, yelling at his son during the tennis matches. And there was one incident where Lyle uh, lost an important tennis match. And uh, Jose uh, punched him and then knocked him down to the ground and uh, broke his shoulder. Jose didn't allow his sons to have close friends. He said they were a distraction. And as they got older, he controlled who they dated and what and where they studied. For him, it was imperative that the boys got good grades, so much so that Jose and Kitty would do their homework all the way through high school to ensure top marks. In 1986, Jose moved the family from New Jersey to California. He had landed a new job at the movie company Carol Co. Pictures, which among other things produced the Rambo movies. Eventually, Jose would run the company's video distribution division called Live Entertainment. In California, Lyle and Eric, who were now handsome, athletic teenagers, started to rebel against their father. They fell in with a crowd of rich, privileged teens in the San Fernando Valley who robbed houses for fun. Much like the bling ring in the 2000s, the teens, including Eric, were caught by police. Jose hired a high-profile criminal defense attorney to arrange a deal for Eric. It included probation, community service, plus the family was required to seek counseling. That's when the Menendez family first met a Beverly Hills psychologist by the name of Dr. Jerome Ozeal. He would soon play a much bigger and important role in the lives of Lyle and Eric. After the robberies, Jose decided the family needed to get out of the valley, So he moved them to a spacious mansion blocks away from Rodeo Drive in Beverly Hills. During this time, Kitty Menendez struggled. She had discovered that her husband was having an affair, and she'd turned to alcohol and Xanax as a way of coping with anxiety and depression. She'd never been a very warm parent, but now she became even more distant, blaming her sons for her marital problems. In the fall of 1987, Lyle Menendez got accepted at Princeton University. For Jose, this was the culmination of all his hard work. His dream of having his son attend an Ivy League school was coming to fruition. But soon, that dream became a nightmare when Lyle was accused of plagiarizing a paper in his first semester. He was suspended, but he was allowed to return the next year. Meanwhile, back in California, Eric completed his senior year at Beverly Hills High School. He was on the tennis team, and he had a solid B average. He planned to attend UCLA the next fall. He wanted to live on campus, but at the last minute, his dad had told him he wasn't allowed. He would have to live at home. By the summer of 1989, despite their many ups and downs, the Menendez family seemed to be doing okay at least from the outside. 
Eric was spending his summer break playing in tennis tournaments around the country, while Lyle was back from Princeton unwinding at home. But by the end of that summer, the family would be rocked by an unbelievable tragedy. As their parents tucked in to watch a movie on a late August evening in 1989, the Menendez brothers met at Eric's car parked on the street in front of their house. Inside the car were a pair of Mossberg 12-gauge shotguns they had bought the day before. The brothers loaded the guns and ran to the house. They burst into the family room where their parents were watching the movie. Eric entered first and began firing. Lyle followed behind. Jose jumped up and yelled, no, no, no. A shot blew away his left thigh. He fell back on the couch. The brothers kept firing. Jose Menendez was shot point blank in the back of the head. Kitty Menendez managed to survive the first round of bullets and attempted to crawl away. But neither would escape the barrage of bullets. Five to Jose's head and body and nine to Kitty's face and body. According to eyewitnesses, it left them virtually unrecognizable. Lyle and Eric Menendez rained fire on their parents, stopping to reload when they ran out of bullets. Then they calmly picked up all of the shell casings and left. After dumping the weapons and their bloody clothes, the brothers first drove to a movie theater and bought tickets for the movie Batman. Next, they drove to a food festival in Santa Monica to meet up with a friend in an attempt to establish an alibi. But when they couldn't find the friend, they returned home around 11.47 p.m. That's when Lyle placed a frantic call to 911. What's the problem? What's the problem? I'm trying to kill my parents. Pardon me? <laughs> what? Who? Are they still there? Yes. The people? What? No, no, no. <laughs> were they shot? Yes, man, too. Uh, were they shot? Yes. They were shot? Yes. When the first officers arrived on the scene, they found the brothers were hysterical. Eric punched the ground and rammed his head against a tree. At the time, Beverly Hills was not exactly a hotbed for crime, logging only two murders a year. This might explain why investigators didn't think to check the brothers' hands for gunshot residue. Instead, they focused on something Lyle said. He suggested that his father's business dealings may have provoked the killings. Officers had noted that the scene looked like a gangland-style massacre. They thought it wouldn't be much of a stretch if the killings were mafia-related. You see, there was something else. Police believed the previous owners of the company Jose worked for had mob connections which wasn't that uncommon in the video distribution business because of its ties to the adult movie industry. The rumors and innuendo spread pretty quickly. There were even a few people who thought that Cuban dictator Fidel Castro might have been behind the slayings. But at least one officer thought something was off about the brothers. Their hysteria seemed overboard, and there were some inconsistencies in their story. Plus, not long after the shocking murders, Lyle and Eric went on a crazy shopping spree. 
Just four days after the killings, they used their dad's American Express card to spend about $15,000 on three Rolex watches. They stayed in a $1,300 a night suite at the Hotel Bel Air. Then when they received half a million dollars in life insurance money, they bought new vehicles. Lyle bought a gray $64,000 special edition Porsche Carrera, replacing his old Alfa Romeo, and Eric bought a tan Jeep Wrangler. They even spent money on courtside tickets to the Knicks at Madison Square Garden, which at the time was one of the hottest tickets in town. Evidence of their spending was well-documented, but if you don't believe me, just check out legendary point guard Mark Jackson's 1990 trading card. You'll see Lyle and Eric sitting front row as Johnson sets up one of his mythical teardrop shots. Crazy. And so was the spending by the brothers. About $700,000 in five months. Not surprisingly, that raised a few red flags. Journalist and author Robert Rand had his first meeting with the brothers during this time period. In October 1989, two months after the murders, he sat down with them at their parents' mansion. They were fit, tanned, and dressed in their tennis whites. So we spent about an hour talking together. They told me uh, loving stories about uh, their parents. Lyle did 90% of the talking. A few times Eric did talk. He would look over to Lyle as if, am I doing okay? But I had no reason to be suspicious of them. They were not suspects publicly. Uh, their stories were emotional, loving, and caring. But police were suspicious. And in March 1990, seven months after Jose and Kitty Menendez were gunned down, they announced the arrest of their oldest son, Lyle. Eric was out of the country at a tennis tournament and was on his way back to the U.S. and would also be arrested in connection with the grisly killings. Within 24 hours, the story blew up around the world. Up until the arrest, the murders of Jose and Kitty had mainly been a local Los Angeles story. But now, with the arrest of their handsome young sons, it was an international media sensation. At a PAC news conference, police told reporters they had investigated all potential leads. The focus became very clear on uh, these two sons. And uh, I might say that uh, over, the, over the months, we've gathered a lot of evidence. Uh, it has been very circumstantial, and we were waiting for the glue, if you will, to bind it all together. And just recently, that glue has come about, and I feel that we have a very tight case indeed. You might have heard reporters asking almost in unison, what is the glue? Police wouldn't answer the question publicly then, but here's what was going on behind the scenes. They had found out that on October 31st, 1989, 10 weeks after the murders, Eric Menendez had met with psychologist Dr. Jerome Ozeal. Remember him? He was the one who counseled the Menendez family after Eric was caught burglarizing houses with other rich teens in the valley. Eric told the doctor he was having an extremely difficult time dealing with the death of his parents. He'd lost weight and was having vivid nightmares with images of their bodies. After talking for about an hour, Dr. Ozeal and Eric went outside for a walk. According to Rand's book, as the walk was ending, 
Eric leaned against a parking meter and let out a deep sigh. Then he said, We did it. Ozeal asked, You mean you killed your parents? Eric answered, Yes. Over the next few weeks, the doctor met with both brothers several times. Sometimes he taped the sessions, and other times he made recorded audio notes after the fact about what they had told him. Under California law, the doctor was not obligated to tell police, so he didn't. Now this is where things start to get a bit complicated and pretty distracting to the case. Actually, there was a lot of things about this story that were distracting. And if you followed them all the way, they could lead down a path that, to be honest, leads you nowhere. Sensational tidbits that might be true, but aren't totally relevant to this story. So in some instances, I have left them out, focusing on the evidence that matters most. For example, Dr. Ozeal, a married father of two, was having an affair with a woman by the name of Judalon Smith. You can go down a rabbit hole about Dr. Ozeal and Smith, crazy allegations from both about the other, everything from kidnapping to drugging. Allegations that would later seep into the Menendez trial and bog it down. But what matters most is that Judalon Smith would be the one who eventually went to police and told them that the Menendez brothers had confessed. Here's Robert Rant. Judalon Smith cracked the Menendez case. And she told the police the Menendez brothers did it, they killed their parents, and Dr. Ozeal has uh, audio notes and an actual so-called therapy tape with the brothers' voices confessing to the murders. Other than those tapes, police didn't have much more to go on. There was no physical evidence tying the brothers to the murders. The whole case basically hinged on the tapes. So that's why the defense fought tooth and nail to keep them out of court. For three years, between 1990 and 1993, they argued that the tapes were covered by doctor-patient privilege. In an unprecedented and controversial decision, the courts eventually ruled against the defense and allowed the tapes to be used as evidence. Because Dr. Ozeal believed that the brothers had threatened him during the tape sessions, the doctor-patient privilege was waived. Under California law, the privilege ends if the therapist believes the patient is an imminent danger to himself or others. While lawyers were in court battling over the tapes, the police and district attorney were steadfast about the motive behind the killings. They said the brothers killed their parents because they wanted to get their hands on Jose's $14 million estate. You have to remember there was no internet, there was no social media, And in high-profile cases, back before the internet and social media, the typically uh, DA's office or police department would set the agenda in a high-profile case. The LA County DA's office has a dozen people that do nothing but public relations. And their job is to put out their spin on the case. And I believe, personally, that their job is to poison the potential jury pool. And so the combined uh, uh, message from the Beverly Hills Police and the LA County DA's office was, greedy rich kids kill Ozzie and Harriet on a Sunday night in Beverly Hills. And that was never the real story. Behind the scenes, Eric and Lyle had come to a decision. They must reveal what had been happening behind closed doors for many, many years. 
it was time to tell the world about the burden they had been carrying. The brothers first disclosed their secret to their lawyer and then their family. Soon, their shocking allegations would stun everyone who had been following the case. In July 1993, two weeks before the trial was about to start, defense lawyer Leslie Abramson went public about the secret life of the Menendez family. In an article published on the front page of the Los Angeles Times, Abramson conceded that the boys had killed their parents in self-defense because they feared for their lives after years of psychological, physical, and sexual abuse. It was a story of a family that uh, had uh, intergenerational sex abuse, had mental health problems, and it was a story of two dysfunctional parents that raised two uh, very troubled kids, and everything ended in a terrible tragedy. Rand believes it was a tactical error for the defense to wait so long to reveal this information, because for many, it appeared to be a last-minute attempt to explain their behavior. Something legal scholar and renowned defense attorney Alan Dershowitz coined as the abuse excuse. The public had a hard time turning away from the narrative that had been created during the three years between the arrest and the trial. In that time, several books were published and movies were made, and they all portrayed the brothers as greedy playboys. The media coverage of the case was so pervasive that when jury selection began, nearly all of the potential jurors knew of the Menendez family. And some said they were sure the brothers were guilty. In an effort to change the public perception, their defense lawyer, Leslie Abramson, had the brothers come to court each day in matching pastel-colored sweaters that made them appear younger than they were. Throughout the trial, she also referred to them as the boys, in an effort to remind jurors they were just 18 and 21 when the crimes occurred. The brothers were tried together, but in an unusual move, two separate juries heard the same case, one for Eric and one for Lyle. That's because some of the evidence didn't apply to both defendants. In another unusual move, the judge allowed the trial to be carried live on court TV one robotic camera would be set up in the courtroom to cover the proceedings. Court TV was fairly new. It was launched in 1991 by lawyer and journalist Stephen Brill, and it provided viewers with live coverage of trials and commentary from experts. The first big case they carried gavel to gavel was the sex assault trial of William Kennedy Smith. Unfortunately for the network, that case only lasted 10 days, so they weren't able to fully test the public's interest in watching a lengthy trial from start to finish. The Menendez case, which was expected to last for months, would be the first true test of the format. And it passed with flying colors. Brill told Rolling Stone in 2017 the Menendez trial was the one that proved people would be interested in watching big trials even without a celebrity. If the circumstances were dramatic enough, people would be captivated. Critics of cameras in courtrooms have argued they add pressure to the proceedings and ultimately turn trials into entertainment, similar to sitcoms, soap operas, and game shows. 
The Menendez trial proved that to be true, too. In fact, people watching the trial became so obsessed that the L.A. District Attorney's Office got 50 calls a day from citizens offering opinions on how to prosecute the brothers. For viewers, this case was like watching a reality show that asked for audience input. Think about American Idol or Dancing with the Stars. When opening statements began on July 20th, 1993, spectators lined up to get seats inside the courtroom for one of the most talked about trials in the country. Reporters and crews from around the world arrived at the courthouse in Van Nuys, California to cover the case. There were just 12 seats reserved for media inside the small courtroom. The rest of the reporters had to watch a satellite feed on TV monitors in a building a block away. Author Robert Rand, who you've been hearing from in this episode, was one of the 12 reporters inside the courtroom watching the proceedings, giving him a front row seat to the case. As the trial began, the lead attorney for the prosecution, Pam Bazanich, painted a picture of young men driven by greed and the fear that their father had written them out of his will. We'll prove to you that Lyle Menendez planned this murder, provided false identification for the purchase of two shotguns, set up an alibi, acquired ammunition, repeated the alibi to the police shortly after the crime, and then set off to spend the money which he had acquired through the killings of his parents. Based upon this evidence, it will become apparent that this murder was unlawful, unjustified, and wholly premeditated, and that it was accomplished through a conspiracy into which Lyle Menendez entered with his brother, and that but for a few mistakes they made, this was almost the perfect murder. Thank you. The defense countered that it was far from a perfect murder. Leslie Abramson told jurors that experts would testify that the crime scene was a prime example of an overkill committed by someone who was experiencing deep fear. Someone like Eric Menendez, who had lived a lifetime of sexual abuse by his father. The defense admitted the brothers killed their parents, but said they were reacting to a lifetime living in a shared war zone. Abramson said they killed in pure terror and pure panic. Eric Menendez was the abused son of wealthy parents. He killed his parents because he could no longer endure their abuse and had to stop it. When he did that, he unwittingly made himself a threat to everything his parents valued. He put himself in mortal danger. When he sensed that danger was imminent, his instinct to survive took over. This would be the crux of the defense case. The Menendez brothers killed their parents because they were afraid. It was an act of self-defense, so first-degree murder should be off the table. In the week before the killings, Eric confessed to his brother that their father was still molesting him on a regular basis, something that he had said started when he was six years old. Lyle testified that he thought that their father had stopped abusing Eric, so he was surprised to hear otherwise. He told the court that he too had been a victim and that their father had sexually abused him as well between the ages of six and eight. When Lyle took the stand, he told the court he confronted Jose Menendez three days before the fateful August night. He threatened to tell outsiders about the alleged abuse if it didn't stop. He said, uh, um, 
what I do with my son is none of your business. And he said, uh, I warn you, don't throw your life away. Just stay out of it. I told him that I would tell everybody all I tell I would tell everybody everything about him. I would tell the police and that I would tell the family. He said, we all make choices in life, son. Eric made his, you've made yours. And then he just looked at me and he got up to leave. I thought we were in danger. I thought he had no, he felt he had no choice. But to what? That he would kill us, that he would get rid of us in some way. Why? Because he thought I was going to ruin him. In extremely emotional testimony, both brothers described the abuse they had suffered over the years at the hands of their father. They struggled to get words out, often fighting back tears. Here's Leslie Abramson questioning Eric. What do you believe was the originating cause of you and your brother ultimately winding up shooting your parents? Um, me telling You telling what? Me telling Lyle that, uh... You telling Lyle what? <laughs> was it you telling Lyle about something that was happening? My dad... Me. Eric testified when they confronted their mom about the abuse, she brushed them off and said she had always known it was happening. The testimony from the brothers was incredibly gripping. It was hard not to watch this real-life miniseries unfolding right before our eyes. Renowned author Dominic Dunn covered the trial for Vanity Fair, as he would later do with the OJ trial. In his eyes, Leslie Abramson was the star of the show, the epitome of a tough lady defense attorney. This is what he wrote. There is never an instant when she is not performing, and she knows how to play to the court TV camera as well as Barbara Streisand knows how to play to a movie camera. A parade of defense witnesses, which included teachers, coaches, family members, and friends, all recalled the brothers' childhood as grim and oppressive. They grew up in a house where hugs and smiles were rare. Jose Menendez was portrayed as domineering and authoritarian, while Kitty was depicted as a cold, rage-filled enigma with a drug and alcohol problem. Andy Canto, a cousin, testified that Eric had confessed to him that his father had touched his privates when they were kids and that he begged Andy not to say anything to anyone. A string of experts in child abuse, a psychologist, psychiatrist, and several professors also testified that extensive jailhouse interviews persuaded them to believe that the brothers were telling the truth. In the end, the two juries spent several weeks trying to come to a unanimous verdict. But they were deadlocked, split between manslaughter and first-degree murder. Finally, the judge was forced to declare a mistrial. Defense lawyer Leslie Abramson was lauded in the media for the outcome. 
the four foot 11 attorney known for her take no prisoners approach was called the queen of miracles by the New York Times. The Washington Post described her as a fire-eating, mud-slinging, nuclear-strength pain in the legal butt. And Marie Claire Magazine declared her one of America's foremost ball busters. After the hung jury, Abramson was swarmed by reporters, and she was just as feisty outside the courthouse as she was inside. You were able to literally say here, or convince some of the people on the jury at least, that child abuse here was an excuse for murder. No, we never argued that child abuse is an excuse for murder. What we argued is child abuse creates a, a terrible fear, and that that fear in, in a certain set of circumstances can cause people to act because they feel they have no choice. We have never said child abuse is an excuse for, for murder. L.A. District Attorney Gil Garcetti, who was still aching from the disastrous outcome in the Rodney King beating case and subsequent L.A. riots, announced that the brothers would be tried again for first-degree murder. But before the second trial could be scheduled, L.A. was gripped by another high-profile murder case. In June 1994, five months after the first Menendez trial ended, Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman were brutally murdered outside her condo in Brentwood. Five days later, Nicole's ex-husband, O.J. Simpson, was charged with the murders following the now infamous slow-speed freeway chase. And sidebar story, O.J. and the Menendez brothers both spent time in the L.A. County Men's Central Jail as they were awaiting court proceedings. According to Robert Rand's book, at one point, O.J. was in the cell right beside Eric. During the week that they were neighbors, the pair talked frequently, and Eric even wrote O.J. a letter with advice on how to handle life behind bars. The second trial for the Menendez brothers wouldn't begin for about a year and a half. And during that time, the spectacle of the O.J. Simpson trial and acquittal had taken place. In one of the more shocking verdicts of all time, O.J. was found not guilty on October 3, 1995. The L.A. District Attorney's Office, led by Gil Garcetti, took a lot of heat for fumbling what seemed like an open and shut case. So that was probably on the DA's mind when opening statements began in the Menendez brothers' retrial on October 11, 1995, just eight days after the O.J. verdict. And within 20 minutes after the uh, mistrial was declared in Menendez 1, Garcetti was on live TV on all the stations in L.A. saying, we are going to retry this case. This is a first-degree murder case. We will never back down from this prosecution. The reality is, if this had not been a high-profile case, there never would have been a second Menendez trial. There would have been a plea deal for maybe second-degree murder, and everybody would have walked away. But because there were politics involved, uh, there was the media involved. You know, Gil Garcetti was, we are going to convict them. The second trial was vastly different from the first one. This time, the brothers were tried together with only one jury panel. And more importantly, cameras were banned from the courtroom. Judge Weisberg, who was hearing the case again, said he made the decision in an effort to protect the dignity of the proceedings. Without the presence of court TV, the 20-week retrial almost resembled a regular murder trial with only the occasional moments of drama. Many legal observers believe that the brothers were at a decided disadvantage in the second trial. 
mainly because the judge excluded most of the sex abuse evidence. Prosecutors persuaded the judge to cut short what they said was unflattering gossip about the parents and the brothers' tortured family life by teachers, coaches, and acquaintances, which often sidetracked the first trial. Basically, the most crucial parts of the defense's case were not allowed. As a result, the final outcome was completely different. On March 21st, 1996, five and a half years after the death of their parents, Lyle and Eric Menendez were found guilty of first-degree murder. Jurors later said in interviews that they would not have gone for murder if they had known the extent of the abuse. Before the brothers were sentenced, they gave a memorable jailhouse interview with Barbara Walters. You might have seen it. It's the one when Eric told Walters he was just a normal kid. In response, Walters looked incredulous and said, Eric, you're just a normal kid who killed his parents. Because the prosecution asked for the death penalty, the jury had another job to do after the verdict was reached. They had to decide whether the brothers would be executed for their actions. This time, family, friends, coaches, and teachers were called to testify about why the brothers should be spared from death. In the end, the jury voted for life without parole. After six years of courtroom wrangling, the fate of the Menendez brothers was finally set. The prosecution also asked the judge to ensure that the brothers were not allowed to serve their time in the same prison because they might commit other crimes together. This outraged defense lawyer, Leslie Abramson. And this is just an attempt, a last ditch attempt by the prosecution to inflict even greater punishment on them than what the law prescribes, and I see it as exceedingly cruel and heartless. I don't hear them making statements like that about serial killers, about baby rapists, but because these are highly notorious defendants, thanks to y'all, they think it's a, it's a free-for-all for inhumanity. The prosecution was granted its request and the brothers were sent to separate prisons. The Menendez brothers did appeal their convictions, and in the first one, in 1998, a state appeals court upheld their convictions, stating that Judge Weisberg did not make any errors when he limited defense testimony about the brothers' upbringing. Then in 2005, a federal court also upheld the convictions, but the appeal judge made a pretty shocking statement while he was hearing arguments. Justice Alex Kaczynski suggested there may have been collusion between the L.A. County District Attorney's Office and Judge Stanley Weisberg to convict the brothers in the second trial. Remember, the DA needed a conviction because of the embarrassment of the not guilty verdicts against LAPD officers in the Rodney King case and the O.J. Simpson case. Despite making the comment about collusion, the judge voted to turn down the appeal. Thanks to a slew of TV specials about the case, the two affluent brothers accused of killing their parents have come back to the public's attention. There were three Menendez specials in 2017. ABC News aired a two-hour documentary called Truth and Lies, The Menendez Brothers, American Sons, American Murderers. 
Lyle provided a jailhouse interview for the show, and he maintained that he'd been abused. There was also a Lifetime movie called Menendez, Blood Brothers, starring Courtney Love as outspoken defense lawyer Leslie Abramson. And in November 2017, Dick Wolf ventured into true crime for the first time with Law & Order True Crime, The Menendez Murders for NBC. It focused on the molestation of the brothers and possible collusion between the DA's office and the judge during the second trial. Robert Rand, who you've been hearing from on this episode, worked as a special consultant on the eight-part series. Rand was surprised at the reaction to the show. And during the uh, Law & Order NBC series, social media was loud and noisy every night that the series was on. In in the fall of 2017, social media was almost 95% free the Menendez brothers. This is horrible. You know, what was done to them during their trials in the 1990s. Dick Wolf told The Hollywood Reporter in August 2017, just before the miniseries aired, that when people see this version of events, they will reconsider the case. He said, yeah, the brothers did it, but it wasn't first-degree murder without parole. It should have been first-degree manslaughter. You can't help but wonder, if this case was heard now, would the outcome be different? Robert Rand believes, yes, it might have a different ending today because we have a greater understanding of sexual abuse and family violence. He believes the brothers should have been convicted of manslaughter, which means they would likely be out of jail today. A BuzzFeed article in 2017 highlighted that the trials took place decades before the media's exposure of the Catholic Church sexual abuse scandal or the Jerry Sandusky Penn State story. Those cases didn't focus on whether the victims were believable or not, but that was always at the center of the case against Lyle and Eric. Were they telling the truth about years of abuse by their father? In fact, the BuzzFeed article points out the abuse allegations were mocked on Saturday Night Live as a carefully staged managed ruse in a sketch where John Malkovich and Rob Schneider acted out a parody of their testimony. Author Dominic Dunn also suggested it was all an act when he wrote in Vanity Fair that Lyle has all the instincts of a great neurotic actor on the order of Marilyn Monroe, Montgomery Clift, or Judy Garland. Of Eric, he noted, he did break down, but only once, and it had none of the pathos or drama of Lyle's first cry. It seemed in the 90s it was either or when it came to the Menendez brothers. They were either cold-blooded killers or tortured victims. They couldn't be both. Or could they? Can years of sexual abuse lead someone to murder their parents and then go on a shopping spree afterwards? According to an article in Psychology Today, more than 90% of adolescents charged with killing a parent had been a victim of abuse and these youths frequently killed because they could no longer tolerate conditions at home. The killings represented an act of desperation, the only way out of a family situation they could no longer endure. This sounds pretty similar to what has at times been a successful defense in US and Canadian courts for battered women. 
The concept of the battered women's syndrome refers to a woman who, following years of abuse, has become so traumatized that she is trapped by her own fear and feels she must kill or be killed. It was legitimized in Canada in 1996 when the Supreme Court of Canada upheld the acquittal of a 22-year-old Manitoba resident who fatally shot her common-law partner after being terrorized and abused. But in the cases of the Menendez brothers, their allegations of abuse were not only not accepted as a defense, they were wholly dismissed by the prosecution. And in the second trial, not even allowed as evidence by the judge. In fact, Justice Weisberg referred to the allegations as trivial matters. Attitudes have changed since the 90s, but allegations of sex abuse are often still subject to extreme scrutiny. Experts say sometimes they're dismissed simply because some people are not psychologically prepared to accept how common harassment and assault can be, and that sometimes people look for reasons to disbelieve. In the case of Eric and Lyle Menendez, people had a hard time believing or comprehending that a father could sexually assault his son. During the trial, defense attorney Leslie Abramson suggested the jury would have had a different take on the abuse if the defendant's name was Erica and not Eric. The brothers' claims were also dismissed in part because they had not been reported before the murders. We know now that child sex abuse is widely unreported. In fact, only 30% of such cases are thought to be disclosed during childhood. Another reason the prosecution dismissed the self-defense case by the brothers was because of how they acted after the murders, mainly that over-the-top shopping spree. But does that mean they weren't tormented by their father? Today we know there isn't a correct way to be a victim. How people react to sexual assault or trauma can be vastly different. Those affected can appear calm or flat one minute, or distraught and angry the next. All reactions are possible. And maybe we didn't understand this very well in the 90s. Luckily, we do now. In the years since the Menendez brothers were sent to jail, they both got married. In fact, Lyle is on his second wife. Lyle married former model Anna Erickson on July 2, 1996, the day he was sentenced to life in prison. But they divorced in 2011 after he was reportedly caught cheating by writing letters to another woman. Lyle married Rebecca Sneed in 2003, and they've been together ever since, despite the fact that California doesn't allow conjugal visits for prisoners convicted of murder. Eric found love with single mom Tammy Ruth Sackerman, who had been writing to him since his first trial. They got married in the prison waiting room in June 1999. After 22 years apart, the brothers were reunited in April 2018 when Lyle was transferred to the Richard J. Donovan Correctional Facility in southern San Diego County, where Eric was housed. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention as well that Lyle no longer wears the toupee that he became known for during his trial. The fact that the handsome young man wore a toupee 
came up during the trial and became one of the many distractions in the case, and it was a bit of a public fascination at the time. Today, Lyle has dropped the hairpiece and is completely bald. Recently, Robert Rand, the man whose work has helped put this episode together, spoke with Marta Canto, Jose's sister and aunt to the brothers. It was her son, Andy Canto, who testified at the trial that Eric had confessed to him about sexual abuse when they were kids. Sadly, Andy died of an accidental drug overdose in 2003 at the age of 29. Marta Canto recently remembered that Eric had written many letters to Andy over the years, starting when they were kids. She invited Rand to go through them, and he was shocked by what he found. Here's Rand reading one of the letters written by Eric to Andy in December 1988, eight months before the murders. I've been trying to avoid Dad. It's still happening, Andy, but it's worse for me now. I can't explain it. He's so overweight that I can't stand to see him. I never know when it's going to happen, and it's driving me crazy. Every night I stay up thinking he might come in. I need to put it out of my mind. I know what you said before, but I'm afraid. You just don't know Dad like I do. He's crazy. He's warned me a hundred times about telling anyone. Rand has turned the letters over to the lawyers representing the brothers now. They're considering whether to file a new appeal in the case. Rand is also working on another possible revelation in the case and suggests that we stay tuned. Thanks for joining me on this look back at the shocking case of the Menendez brothers. Be sure to check out the show notes for a link to my guest, Robert Rand. This episode relied heavily on his book, The Menendez Murders, The Shocking Inside Story of an American Tragedy. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to our show so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, please don't forget to rate and review us. It helps spread the word and get more people to find the show. We're available for free at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. And if you're new to the show, make sure you go back and listen to some of our older episodes. If you want to reach out to me, you can find me on Twitter at 1990s History. I'm also on Instagram and Facebook. And you can email me at 90s at CuriousCast.ca. That's 90s at CuriousCast.ca. This show is hosted and co-written by me, Kathy Kinzora, and Dila Velasquez, our producer. Sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s.